Remain standing and we're going to read the word of the Lord aloud together. The words on your bulletin from Psalm 22 and from 35. We will read them just in sequence, but together we read the word of the Lord. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, will I fulfill my vows. I will give you thanks in the great assembly. Among throngs of people, I will praise you. Now let's join hands with one another. And we're going to pray together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we come together in this great assembly, fellowship, to praise you and to thank you beyond words for grace and peace and joy, the great gifts of your spirit. Every good and perfect gift that we have comes from you and we acknowledge it gladly. Father, save us from ever taking you and your blessings for granted. All that we have and are is because of your boundless, limitless grace. And we come to thank you and to affirm our love for you. We pray, Father, for people in this room who are having specific needs in their lives. Maybe they're physical, emotional, relationships, family spiritual, grief, disappointment, frustration, all of the things that we as flesh are heir to, we pray that your great spirit would personalize every word of music and every word of message to be your word to our needy hearts and lives, to strengthen us in our walk with you and to deepen our love for you and to enrich our fellowship with one another. We hold each other's hands because we love you and love one another because you first loved us. And this we pray in the loving name of Christ our Savior. Amen. As you know, Martha and I and our family have been away and we had a fantastic time and all our children and our grandchildren. It's just one of those, one of those memories that... Uh, uh, will keep in my heart forever. And while away, I, I did uh, sort of the last pass at a book I've been uh, working with and kind of dabbling with off and on uh, for three or four years. And we got it uh, uh, pretty well finished, and it looks like it will be out sometime in September or October. And it's really a book of stories. It's a book of stories about how God speaks to us through unlikely people and sometimes in unlikely places where God kind of slips up on us and comes to us through angels that we are unaware of. These angels that are walking around out here camouflaged as human beings. Joe was one of those. And sometimes people are not conscious of the fact that they're being used by God to say something to you that we need to hear. And working on that book and working on my own life and thought, I think we need to be made, help be made sensitive by the Spirit of God to the way He comes to us and speaks to us in subtle, quiet ways through people that we may not think are, quote, commissioned 
preachers of the gospel. Little things, quiet things, simple statements. I've never heard the voice of God. I don't doubt that some people have. But I've never heard the voice of God. But I know very, very well that God has spoken to me through people. Many of you in this room, my wife, my children, my grandchildren. And so this morning, I'm not going to tell you any of the stories that are in the, in the book, but I'm going to tell you a story that's stories that are a part of my life. And three events in my life uh, in which my children were involved in saying something that God used to both refresh me, encourage me, and challenge me. And going to begin with the youngest, with Lisa, who is now, of course, uh, grown and married. And uh, Lisa, when she was about, oh, 10 years of age or so, uh, we were talking at home about some horrible event that was on the news. I mean, it was comparable uh, to the school shootings up in Denver and, and other events of just senseless violence and just terrible things that people do to other people. We were talking about it and I was trying to point out the fact that in the midst of all of this, somehow God loves us and God's trying to work something through this to help other people be better and trying to use it as a lesson. And we'll get into the meaning of that a little more as I move on. And I said, well, you know, we do need to remember that God is love. And let me remind you what uh, the Apostle John wrote in 1 John, 4th chapter, 7th verse. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Well, I was trying to kind of slip in a little devotional there and... Uh, Lisa, in her very open and spontaneous manner, said, Well, I'm sure that's true. About 11 or 12 years old. But I, I know I would make a very bad God. <laughs> because she had the feelings that a lot of us have toward people who do horrible things to other people. That's just sort of our natural response to it. And it's understandable. The thing that's so impressive to me about Lisa saying it, saying it is that she recognized, she was cognizant of the fact that her attitude toward those people was different from God's attitude toward them. Now there's a tendency all of us have and historically have had, and that is to create God in our image rather than realize that God created us in his image and he created us in, the, in his image, which doesn't mean physical image at all, of course, but it means the image of a person who can make choices, the person who can love, the person who can say yes or no. He created us as volitional human beings with the power to make decisions. God is love. Now, what is your definition of God? I talked to a woman in the hospital once years ago. She said, I love Jesus and I talked to Jesus, but I'm scared to death of God. 
She had grown up in an environment where God was used as a threat to punish her. God will get you. God will hurt you. God will punish you. And uh, that just stuck with her. Then she came to know Jesus as her Savior and never came to see that Jesus is really the final, full, ultimate revelation of the nature of God. If you really want to know what God is like, don't go back to the Old Testament because that's partial There is partial revelation there because people were trying to create God in their own image. We do not know what God is fully like until he comes in person and he lived it out and loved it out and worked it out in the lives of people. So we define God by Jesus. But some people have a a, a separation there. They categorize God over here and Jesus over here is loving us and God's over here and Jesus is out here trying to turn God into a Christian. And uh, kind of pacify him. That is not the way it is. God was in Christ, the Bible says, reconciling the world unto himself. Says that God is love. That great verse of scripture that we all quote. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not just Jesus' love and the love of the Holy Spirit. But the love of God the Father. What is your definition of God? How would you define him? Well... Uh, I heard a, a clever story about this very famous and well-to-do man whose daughter was dating a boy and they were very serious and he knew that. And his daughter said, uh, my boyfriend and I want to talk to you. And he knew what it was about. He knew that the boy was going to ask uh, him for his daughter's hand in marriage like George Pilgrim did uh, for Lisa. He came to me. And so this young man and the daughter of this prominent business person, wealthy and all, all those things, came to see him and said, uh, I love your daughter and I love her very much and I want to, to marry her with your blessing. And he said, well, that's fine. I, I think a lot of you and I know you're a fine person and I know my daughter loves you. And he said, let, let, me, let me ask, how, where are you? What are you doing right now? He said, well, I'm going to finish school at college this year and then uh, I'm going to seminary. I'm going to study the Bible and I'm going to be a preacher. He said, oh, that's wonderful. I affirm that. That's good. Uh, well, let me ask you a practical question. Um, if you marry my daughter, you're going to have to live somewhere and have food and clothing and that sort of thing. Uh, how are you going to do that? How are you going to provide for her? And the young man said, God will provide. Well, you can't question his faith. But still this concerned father, as any of us would, pursued it a little further and said, well, you know, it costs money to have food and you've got to have transportation and, and uh, got to go to school and all of those things. Uh, how do you plan to pay for that? He said, God will provide. He asked a few more questions and the same answer came back, God will provide. Well, he said, that's fine. I trust God and I trust you and I, you have my blessing. And then the man went to talk to his wife and she said, well, tell me about the conversation. What did he say? And he said, well, he's a fine young man. He just has a lot of faith, a lot of commitment and uh, loves our daughter very much. But said, you know, uh, I'm concerned about one thing. And she said, what's that? And he said, I'm concerned because I think he believes I'm God. Well, I see a lot of fathers smiling at this point, at this point. 
A woman called our church not long ago, a uh, week or so ago, and said that she's a Christian. She's a member of our church, but she lives and part of her family at times uh, question her and even to a degree ridicule her because they say, you claim to believe in God. You claim to be a follower of Christ. How How can you worship a God who would do things like have done in Colorado and the school shootings and the rages that take place in communities where people are hurt and harmed. How do you explain God dealing with all of that and creating all of that? She said, Bugner, will you sometimes say something about that? So I want to talk for just a moment or two about the character of God. Now, this is a question that is on the minds of people for centuries and centuries and centuries. God created a world because he is a God of love and it is the nature of love to create. And he created us with the capacity to love him back. Now, if he had created us as robots, then he could have manipulated us and everything would have been perfect. No one would ever have run a stop sign. No one have ever stolen anything. No one would ever have killed anybody. We'd have been robots and he could have made us that way. And we, there would have been a world without pain and a world without suffering and a world without choice. But because he created us in his image, he created us with the capacity to love. Because it's not real love if you don't have a choice. If you're made in such a way that love is forced upon you, it's coercive, then it is not real love. It has to be a choice that you and I make. So God created us with the choice to say yes to him or no to him. To say, yes, I will trust you or I will not trust you. And Adam and Eve, our spiritual forefathers, set the pattern for us. They knew what was right. They knew what God had said. They knew what he wanted, but they did otherwise. And so there was injected into the bloodstream of the human race, a virus that is evil, which means that the whole world is groaning and travailing, as Paul said, until the final redemption comes. So we have a a principle of evil in the world. It's there because people do make choices that are contrary to the will of God and the way of God and the love of God. Now, So God gave natural law, he gave physical law, he gave moral law. Uh, If my child falls into the fire or my grandchild falls into the fire, I say, oh God, don't let the fire burn. Stop the fire from burning until I get my grandchild out of the fire. But if he stops the fire from burning, he contradicts the principle of fire. And if he stops the fire from burning that would save my grandson or granddaughter, then the sun goes out. And the whole planet dies. If my son is falling out of a fifth story window, I pray, oh God, suspend the law of gravity for just about five seconds until I can save my son. Well, if he does that, the whole world spins off into outer space. So you see, God has given a physical law and he's also given a moral law. Now, I know that sounds strange to some people in this generation, but God has given a moral law, not because he's trying to ruin our party, it's because he's trying to straighten it out. God gave a moral law because he said life will be better if you live by certain rules and regulations. If you don't kill each other, if you don't steal from each other, if you're not, if you're faithful to one another in your marriage, if you don't bear false witness to one another, one another, won't life be better? Well, of course it would be better. Just pragmatically, it would be better. But they still do it. So we have the rule. We know that we ought to do it. Life would be better if we didn't hate, if it were not prejudice and violence, all that. But 
there is that stuff in the human race where some people will say, no, I'm not going to listen to my conscience, not going to listen to the word of God, not going to listen to the spirit of God, not pray about my decision. I'm going to do my own thing. So bad things happen to people. Does God get up in the morning and say, okay, today this baby's going to die, drunk driver's going to hit the car, this little child's going to die of leukemia, this person is going to die from some strange sort of thing? Not at all. Let me tell you, if you and I care about people who have things happen to them when they're not doing anything wrong, if we're concerned about it, if we care about it, how much more does God care? What kind of father would I be if I enjoyed seeing my children suffer? What kind of father would I be if I would intentionally hurt them? I'd be a demon. And there's some people who have that idea of God. I wouldn't worship a God like that for five seconds. That God would be my devil. If God cares, if I care about my children, how much more does God care about them than even I do? It's hard to believe that and conceive that, but it is true. God loves us more than we can love anyone else. And he created us for a purpose. And bad things happen because life is like that. It is like that. Now, I don't understand it all. And I cannot philosophically explain it all. But I do believe that I have found the answer. Not unique to me at all, but I do believe I have found the answer. The answer is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're looking for injustice, look at Jesus. If you're looking for unfair treatment from society, look at Jesus the only sinless man that ever lived, the only perfect man that ever lived, brutally nailed to a cross and he died and rose again. Now, I believe with all of my heart that it is the cross and the resurrection that resolves the problem of how God works in the world. He does not immunize us against troubles and problems, but what does he do? He infuses himself in us. And that favorite verse of scripture of about half of you in this room, Romans 8, 28, for we know that God works all things together for good to them that love him and to them who are called according to his purpose. And what that says is sometimes that gets, creates a picture of God being here sort of as a chess master, moving these pieces around uh, our lives around on a chessboard and jumping some and knocking some over. Not so. That's not the way it is at all. God is a part of the game. That verse of scripture says, for God is in all things, working things together for good to them that love him. God is a part of what's going on here. And the principle of the cross and the resurrection epitomized in the person of Jesus says, I'm going to take all of the stuff that happens to you and I'm going to make it work together. All things, good things, bad things, sad things, glad things. I'm going to take all of that mixture of life and I'm going to be a part of it and I'm going to get into the middle of your life and I want to make things come out good in the ultimate conclusion of things you will be he said more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ I am your Lord the cross and the resurrection is the core curriculum of the kingdom of God you take the cross and the resurrection out of the life of Jesus and you don't have a New Testament, you take the cross and the resurrection out, you don't have Christianity. 
You have a philosophical statement or two that may be good as a quotation and a book of quotations, but the cross and the resurrection is proof that God is for us. And he says that that the spirit that's in you is greater than he that's in the world. You are not going to be ultimately triumphantly overcome by Satan himself. You are more than a conqueror through Christ. There's an inscription on the graveyard in London that when you read it, you think this is some famous person that made this statement. And on the tombstone it says, on the gravestone it says, all the darkness of the world cannot put out the light of a single candle. It was written and put on that gravestone by an elderly woman in London whose pet was killed by the bombs that rained down on London during the Blitz in World War II. And that little dog was her companion. And he, and she buried that little dog in this graveyard and wrote that on the tombstone. Write it in your heart. All the darkness of the world cannot put out the light of Jesus Christ in your life. All the accumulated evil of the world, all the multiplied darkness of the world cannot extinguish the eternal light in your life. Another event happened. Really, it's a wonderful PS to that. And that was a statement Stephen made that some of you have heard uh, me tell before. When he was a little boy, about six or seven, we um, gave him some money and he wanted to go up on his own without parental supervision to go up to the, to the what we call the ice house. It was, the, it was a convenience store. Well, to get there, he had to walk. We live on a dead-end street. Blanton is dead-end. If our homes cost more, we'd call it a cul-de-sac. Uh, you see, if you, live, <laughs> you have a real expensive house, it's a cul-de-sac. Uh, if it's not, it's a, it's a dead end. Uh, but um, so he couldn't, he couldn't go up uh, to the corner of uh, North New Braunfels and Nacogdoches Road without going down to Woodridge and then going over to, to Rock Hill and uh, going up uh, to Nacogdoches that way. Well, uh, to North New Braunfels that way. So uh, he went and we would, you know, we couldn't, you couldn't let your child do that today. And that's something that was not that many years ago. But uh, we let Steve go and and he came, he was, he was gone longer than I thought uh, he should, but he finally came back and he came back. His eyes normally big, were real big, boy, just like that. And I could tell something had happened. And I said, Steve, what happened? He said, oh, he said, everything's okay. I said, well, what happened? He said, well, you know, I went up Rock Hill and you know, Thor lives on Rock Hill. Now Thor was the name of a great Dane as big as that piano. And he said that Thor came running out at me, barking. And he said, I was so afraid, I knew I shouldn't run. But he said, I just walked along and prayed and asked Jesus to help me. And he said, I, he didn't come bite me or anything, just kept barking. And I went on up the store. I said, well, what happened when you came back? He said, I went home another way. <laughs> Smart kid. And no use courting disaster, right? 
learn from your past. Uh, he, came, uh, he came home and then he made this statement. He said, you know, if Jesus hadn't risen up from the grave, we'd be scared all the time, wouldn't we? I said, yeah, that's right. You are exactly right. Now his English wasn't all that hot, but his theology was right on. If Jesus hadn't risen up from the grave, let me tell you, my friend, we'd be scared all the time. And as Paul said, if Jesus hadn't risen up from the grave, we are of all men most miserable. Because three score years and 10 is it. And oblivion beyond, no. Because I live, he said, you shall live also. And his resurrection is proof of the fact that we are going to live and outshine and outlive the stars. Now, Lisa, Steve, and Mike. When we came to Trinity, we, I had been an evangelist for 10 years. Martha and I traveled together, took Mike with us when he was born, and then when Steve was born, took him. And then we came here in 1959. Mike was three and Steve was eight or nine months old. Now, I'd been an evangelist. All I had done for all those years, week in, week out, week-long revivals, two-week revivals, once a four-week revival, one time preached for eight solid weeks in revival. I had one message, and that was evangelism, evangelism, winning people to Christ, calling people to the Lord. And I came to Trinity, and I preached all those sermons at first because I was just trying to kind of find my way. And then I, I started trying to preach that would be more inclusive, that would encourage people, that would deal with people who are having troubles or heartbreaks of one kind or another. And at one time or another, all of us experience some heartbreak. As, as Tennyson wrote in memoriam, never morning wore to evening, but some heart did break. It's true. Never morning wore to evening, but some heart did break. And there's some broken hearts sitting here in this room today. And I, I, I had not preached on that. I had not I didn't have a pastoral approach to life and I was struggling with it in my own life. And I uh, was going home from church one Sunday and that's when I was still driving on a little Volkswagen so I, I know I had a wreck in it in 1963 and I won't even ride in one since. But, uh, so I know that it was before August of 1963. So Mike was about six, maybe seven years old and he was come going home with me in a little Volkswagen. And Martha, I'm sure, was picking up Steve and going home after church. And we got in the car out here on the parking lot. And I was going down Shook. And let me tell you, I could walk right over there to Shook Avenue. And I could put an X on the spot where Mike said something. He had no idea how God was using it to speak to me. He's never heard this story. None of you have ever heard this story. Martha's the only one that's heard this story. I said, Mike, how was Sunday school today? He said, okay, good. I said, well, how was church today? He said, paused a little. He said, okay. Uh, and I thought, well, I'll just leave it alone. <laughs> and then there was a long pause. And then he said this. He didn't say it with any 
rancor or bitterness. He just asked a question. I'd ask him a question and he answered it with a question. And it was a question that God used to just shoot right through the middle of my heart. He said, Dad, does anybody in church ever do the right thing? And I felt like I'd been hit by a divine two by four. And I started examining my preaching over the last number of months and I was struggling with trying to become a pastor and how to preach as a pastor as compared with an evangelist. And I was projecting my own frustrations onto the church unknowingly. And it wasn't what I was saying. It was the spirit in which I was saying it. So I did a couple of things. I went back and reread Jesus, went back and reread the Gospels, and I went back and reread what Paul said. And I want to quote or read what Paul said first to Timothy, a preacher, a pastor. Paul said, Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct. That's NIV. King James says, Reprove, rebuke. And encourage with all long suffering and careful instruction or patience. I stopped with the first two words, and a lot of preachers still do. I listen to preachers on television occasionally. Sometimes I hear them, and I think, go on to the next word, go on to the next word. Yes, we need to reprove, yes, we need to rebuke. We know there's a lot of sin in our world. We know there's a lot of violence that's taking place. We know there's a lot of junk on television and in the movies and in literature. We know it's there and we need to let people be reminded of it and that it's there and it's a virus in the bloodstream of our culture and it's poisoning our culture and poisoning our minds and it's there. We need to be reminded of that. We need to be reproved. We need to be rebuked, but for God's sake, encourage with all long suffering. Suffering with, caring with, caring for, and patience, careful instruction, helping people, lifting people. And I listened to Jesus reading through. You read through the, through the life of Jesus, and you know the, the only people he reproved and rebuked were the religious folks who thought they were better than everybody else. Were putting people down because they weren't like them or because they had some infirmity or some imperfection. They were considered sinners. But the people who were down, the brokenhearted, the common folks like all of us, he lifted them up. In Job, the fourth chapter, uh, Eliphaz, before he begins to needle Job later on in that book, Eliphaz gives Job a wonderful compliment. He said, you help men stand on their feet. What better compliment could be given a proclaimer of the gospel of Christ than that statement? You help men get on their feet. Listen to Jesus. Saying to the man at the pool of Bethesda, 38 years, get up, take up that bed and walk, get on your feet. To the paralyzed man in Capernaum in the synagogue when he'd been let down through the roof, get up, take up your bed, walk. Bartimaeus, come here, get off the side of that curb and follow me. Get up, Lazarus, get up, get up. Get on your feet. Jesus came to put people on their feet. He came to lift us up and to encourage us and to put his arms around us and to help us walk through life victoriously. Encourage. There's nothing people need. I don't believe there's nothing people need more than encouragement. 
And then the compassion of Jesus. It's just incredible. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Here he is weeping over Jerusalem. You want to know what God's like? He sits on a hill looking at his city and he cries. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You were not willing. You were not willing. Do you hear what he's saying? I will, but you won't. I will, but you won't. I will. I will you to come to me. I invite you to come to me. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Casting all of your care upon me because I care for you. That's what we're to do, isn't it? That's what we as Christians are to be. That's what we as a church are to be. What are we? We're the body of Christ. We're to be doing in our day exactly what Jesus was doing. We're to have the attitudes toward people in our day that Jesus had toward people in his day. We're not better than anybody else. We're just all sinners saved by grace. And we're just one starving man telling other starving men where to find bread, as Pascal said. That's what we're to be as a church. And I received a letter, brief little letter from a little girl that I want to read to you. I think that epitomizes what Christianity is all about just about as much as anything I have ever read outside of the Bible. Came this week, pastor, My name is Elizabeth and I'm nine years old. I see your ads on TV all the time. I hope my printing is neat for you to read. Look, I mean, I wish I could write that way. I can't even print that well. My, it's just impeccable, perfect. I hope my printing is neat for you to read. I have a neighbor friend who needs prayer and help. She takes care of her dad and grandmother. Both of them are sick. Vicki does everything herself when she takes care of her grandmother. And it's hard on her. I sometimes see her crying. Now their car does not work right and she walks to the little store to get food. She says the car can't be fixed until they get money next month. She's a good person. Maybe you can ask God for help. Sincerely, thank you. Elizabeth, and then she puts a big smile down at the bottom. Didn't even give me her last name or her address. There's no return address on it. But she gave me Vicky's address. Vicky's address is, and she gave me the address. Didn't give me Vicky's last name. So this week I wrote Vicky, and I said, Vicky, I don't know your last name, but I want you to know you have the best friend in the world in Elizabeth. She cares about you, and she's concerned about you, and she wrote me about you. And so I'm writing you to tell you that we care about you and we love you and uh, you are blessed to have such a good friend as Elizabeth. And I want to write Elizabeth and thank her for her letter. Will you tell her to please write me again and give me her address? And I don't know your last name, but I know you need help and I just want you to know we're going to pray for you. And I wrote that letter and signed it. We put some money in it and I said, maybe this will help a little bit. Now I want you to notice about Elizabeth. Elizabeth didn't ask a thing in the world for herself. She asked for something for her friend. And she didn't ask us to give her friend any money. She didn't ask for anything. She just said, maybe you can ask God for help. Well, God help all of us to be like Elizabeth, 
be like Jesus. Reprove when we need to, yes. Rebuke when it's in place, but encourage with all long-suffering and patience. And in so doing, we glorify our Lord. Do we not? We do. I want to invite you to trust him today. Say, I've got problems. Well, welcome home. Everybody does. The only people that came to Jesus that didn't think they had problems were the religious folks, and they walked away from him. Everybody who had a need, he met. Everybody who had a hurt down deep in their hearts, he healed. Everybody who had a sin they couldn't seem to get rid of, he took it. He'll take all of yours and all of mine, and he is our Savior. He is our friend. Lisa reminded us of God. Steve reminded us of Jesus being with us. When Thor barks at us, and Thor is the name for the God of thunder. Thunder. Thunder doesn't kill. It frightens and it darkens the sky. But it's only thunder. God will be with us through the thunder. And then God will be with us to be a witness for him, to encourage and help. Come help us do that by trusting him as your Savior. He weeps for you, wants you, loves you. To come help this church be the church God wants it to be, you'll help us be better. I'll be here to greet you. You come as God's Holy Spirit impresses you. Yes, let's stand. You come.